Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Thursday, February 20th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writer Twadran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So Brad is not with us today. Uh, he's going to be out until the end of the month, and uh, we have been doing nothing. So that's the end of today's episode of The Water Cooler. No. Um, <laughs> but we do have, like, a very thin uh, list of things that we've been doing, either because uh, the things that we've been doing are stuff that we've already talked about on The Water Cooler. Like, you know, I've still been watching McMillions and still been watching Survivor, but I've already talked about that. Or there's just, you know uh, – mo- the movies being released in February are very few and far between and not very interesting. But we're, we're going to talk about some things. We have a list of stuff to get to here, uh, but it's probably going to be a shorter than usual episode. So let's uh, start things off with, uh, I, I guess, something that I do on a regular basis. I try not to talk about it every week on the podcast, but this past week weekend, I went to Disneyland, and it was extremely busy because of the President's Day weekend. It was um, insane. It was... Uh, Kitra and I were there recording videos, and we were in Galaxy's Edge, and we decided, like, you know, why don't we, like, do a live stream for the first time on YouTube? And this is something I've never done before. I've done, you know, periscopes on, like, Twitter or whatever it is, and, you know, you get a couple, like, hundred people watching, and it's 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 interesting. I've done that with, like, Dave Chen. I know, Ben, you've done that with Dave Chen, right? Like, where you've periscoped, like, a reaction to, like, a show or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But I've never done, like, a live stream from, like, a real location that's, like, a busy, like, you know, like, you're not, like, in, I'm usually periscoping from my house, like, you know, like, sitting down. So, uh, this is the first time I've ever really live streamed from, like, a, like, a real crazy location. And we went on YouTube. We didn't know how many people were going to show up. And I think, like, within a couple minutes, we had, like, almost 2,000 people. In our in our live stream, which I'm not sure if you guys have ever encountered this on YouTube, but when you or if you if you can even imagine this, but when you have 2,000 people in a chat room, 
the chat basically it's just the stream that just keeps on moving up the screen and uh, up the screen and you can't even read any of the words like it's like unreadable um so there was that there was uh, mixed with us like trying to walk through galaxy's edge and you know answer questions and stuff like that but it was almost impossible to answer questions because the chat was moving too so fast which i now understand the whole purpose of like on youtube they have these things called super chats which people can like basically pay whatever they choose to like send you a super chat which kind of gets highlighted and stays on the screen for an extended period of time so people were doing that and like we were we received like hundreds of super chats in this over this period of an hour that we were streaming live and it it was crazy people were running from parts other parts of the park actually other parks they were running all the way over to galaxy's edge to see, see us because they got the notification we were streaming live so there was like it was just insane like we were getting mobbed by people it was insane i'm not sure it's something we can do again on a weekend in the park because it, it became kind of like a uh a big thing but the the videos online i'm not sure it's very interesting because we didn't know what we were doing uh we didn't know you know i, I was like touching the screen and my fingers like in the on the camera and stuff like that but it, it was a big learning experience and it was very uh humbling and great to to meet all the people that watched the videos and we a lot of people came over and said they actually read the site and listen to the podcast and um it was just crazy and insane and uh i gotta find a better way of doing this in the future (laughs) it's it's basically what it comes down to but that 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 was kind of the most uh crazy thing i did this week but uh that 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 is nothing in comparison to jacob who ran a 5k oh i want to like say it's crazy 5k is not very long it's it's very very short by running standards but yes i did run a 5k it's the first running event i've ever done and um, I'm hoping to do more. I'm hoping to actually start properly training for running as opposed to just, you know, doing general physical training. And I'm already uh, eyeing another 5K in uh, October and possibly December. So like I said, 5K, is, is, I, I need to emphasize this. It is not a long distance. It's literally the amateur event. It's a thing that, you know, families do and elderly people do. And it's not taken seriously by the overall. It was at the Austin Marathon. You know, they did the Austin Marathon event. It's a huge huge thing and once it's all cleared out you know it's like okay five guys five k guys here you go so i just want to emphasize that uh as an overall accomplishment in the world of sports or athleticism it's a very minor thing but for me it felt pretty big so i'm, I'm happy i did it and uh i'm happy to uh keep going for this kind of stuff because uh i think trying to stay fit has been over the past year plus now has proven incredibly rewarding congrats jacob that's awesome uh, thank you yeah i think yeah, you're downplaying amazing. this like, I don't know, I get winded. Like, there's sometimes I'm wa- out walking my dogs and I'm like, oh, I, I will jog for half this block. And, like, I, I feel like I'm going to die for the rest of the day after. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really out of shape. So a 5K to me sounds like a marathon, Jacob. It is about uh, one-tenth of a marathon. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I realize that. 5K again? Uh, 3.1 miles. So. Oh, my God. That's, uh, that's still really amazing, Jacob. Like, I would probably still just walk that if I were <laughs> participating in one. So yeah, well, the, the trick is do interval. Um, my father-in-law is a huge running runner. He's been running for 40 years, and he runs marathons. He ran Boston Marathon years ago. And what he does, we told, what he told me to do is uh, download an app that uh, to the timer. You run for three minutes, walk for one. 
uh, and then the time where it's kind of like bings, you went time to switch up, and I, I did that, and I was able to um, do quite well. I mean, like, I, I think my finishing time, I think it was 41 minutes, which is, you know, not amazing, not great. People, people finish it in, like, you know, less than 10 minutes because you're, you're like, you know, expert runners, but uh, for me, yeah, that's good, and I'm hoping, you know, uh, keep it up, and uh, I'm working actual running training into my uh, into my regimen now as opposed to, um, you know, just doing it occasionally. Uh, it's my everything so far, you know, I do a, I, every day I do a recumbent bike, and, every, and, every, and three days a week I do strength training, and five days a week I was doing ring fit adventure game, and now I'm going to start using a few ring fit days as running training days to, to sort of uh, keep it going that direction. Well, that that is awesome. awesome. I, I'm I'm proud of you, Jacob. Well, thank you, Peter. Um, Chris, what have you been doing? Uh, I tried Blue Apron, a friend of ours, which is a, like a, it's a meal delivery service. Um, a friend of ours has it, and if you're if you're like a member, you get to send someone a free coupon. So he sent us a, a coupon for like two free meals. So I tried it out, and. Uh, I liked it. I don't know if I'm going to actually stick with it just because I'm, I'm a cheap person and I don't like <laughs> spending money. But for for a free thing, um, it, it turned out pretty well. And I, you know, I don't usually cook. And my wife doesn't usually cook. We usually have very simple, like one ingredient meals because we're boring people and we don't like to do things. Wait, wait. What is an example of like an average meal from at the... Uh evangelist uh, household i mean i usually have like a veggie burger and you know microwave vegetables because again i'm a boring person and my wife does pretty much somewhat of the same although she eats meat whereas i i don't so it's not it's not the most exciting adult meal thing but i gotta say you know doing this actually like cooking and following the instructions and it made me feel like uh, like a real like adult person even though i'm like in my mid-30s i should have felt like this (laughs) long ago but i was like ah this is nice this is what like adults do they make dinner and uh yeah so it it was a nice experience i don't know how how much longer i'll 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 stick with it but uh for uh, you know a free thing it, it was it was definitely worth it I love these. I'm not sure if any of the other people on this podcast have like these meal delivery services. I've gone through a, a couple different ones, and they're better. You know, there's there's ones that are better than others, and whatever. It's not worth talking about. Uh, I know the slash filmcast is brought to you by one of them. I don't remember which one, uh, but uh, we are not sponsored by any of them, so we can talk as much shit as we want. Uh, but uh, I I love these. Like I feel. Yeah, I never cooked, uh, you know, growing up and even into my 20s. And get, getting these services, it, it almost, like, gives me the same joy and peace as, like, I used to put together, like, Lego sets and following the instructions. And it really makes you feel accomplished, even though you're basically just following the same instructions anybody could do. And, like, having that meal that you created and eating it and, it, 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 like, it tastes it, – it tastes – for some reason, it tastes better than like you know something you've ordered or something. You know, I, Chris, I'm like you. Like you know, we micro, we usually microwave a lot of stuff or whatever. Like so, it's not. Um, we're not usually used to making meals. And one of the things I hate about making meals is like when you go out to get ingredients, you always have like all these leftover ingredients, and then you feel like. I have to do something with those ingredients. So then you have to like find something that has those ingredients. And I like that these like meal delivery services, it's just like one and done. Everything's in there. Everything, you know, 
don't know. Does anybody else out there use like Blue Apron or, or any of those services? I don't, but I've been tempted to try some of them because uh, I do cook uh, my meals. I cook like once or twice a week. Um, and I generally have a rotation of maybe five or six meals that I cook every couple of weeks and stuff, but I get a little bit tired of the lack of diversity. And sometimes I look at Blue Apron and I'm like, oh, it's nice not to have to think about what I'm going to eat tonight and have to like go to the to the grocery store and buy all those ingredients and have to decide what I'm going to eat. Like it'd be nice if it was delivered, but I do not like how much plastic they use yeah. uh, in their delivery boxes. So that's one of the things that kind of puts me off of them. Yeah, like every single thing is individually wrapped. Like we wrapped up one carrot. Like this seems excessive to me, but yeah. Yeah, I wonder like, yeah, I wonder why they do that. Is that, it's probably an inventory thing, right? Like they have to like inventory everything and then like put it into the package. Um, ben, have you ever tried this? I have not. I've I've done like Amazon Fresh just for like grocery delivery, yeah. but that's the the most I've ever done in terms of that. My wife and I are pretty good about trying to make stuff. Well, my my wife really. I mean, I barely do anything, but she <laughs> she does a lot of the the cooking and and is like has a bunch of cookbooks from like people like uh, Chrissy Teigen and there's a lot of great restaurants in L.A. that she has the cookbooks for that like produce their own cookbooks and she has co the cookbooks for. So, um, yeah, we're we're generally like pretty good about trying to you know, make our own meals every night. See, see, my problem is I like after working, like we'll like order something on Postmates and like ordering something on Postmates, getting delivery and stuff after, you know, you've tipped your delivery driver, they got their, you know, fees and taxes. And then it's the cost of the stuff can be like 30 or 40 bucks for like a meal. And I, the, as much as like Chris, I know you're saying that like like uh, one of these delivery services is expensive, but like sixty dollars for three nights of meals is is better than <laughs> than ordering out. But yeah, I guess it's probably not as cheap as uh, you know microwave and you know making it yourself. But okay, uh, I'm sorry to go on about Blue Apron and delivery services, but we, it, it's really we we don't have that much to talk about today, guys. <laughs> Uh, I thought we would uh, to explore that. Uh, let's talk about what we've been reading. Ben, you read the well, Star Wars, the Rise of Skywalker came out. And shortly after it came out, there was a leak of Colin Trevorrow and Derek Connolly's draft, their first draft of Star Wars Episode Nine before they left. They did a few drafts, but this was their first draft. This was completed... I think a week before Carrie Fisher died. So, it, you know, things have to change even, you know, with that in there. Uh, but it was called Star Wars Duel of the Fates. I'm not sure if that's just a temporary title or if that was what they were actually going for. Ben, you actually read the script. What did you think? Yeah, I almost never read scripts, but I was just so curious about what this version could have been uh, compared to the ultimate version that we, you know, uh, ended up getting because I, I, I'm on record as not being a huge fan of The Rise of Skywalker, and I was just very, very curious to see what somebody else would have done with this story. And, you know, we talked about this. I think Chris talked about it briefly, um, you know, when the news came out about the differences in the script and stuff. So we've already talked about this a little bit, and I'm not going to, you know, hash out every single thing. But I do want to just touch on a couple things that I really liked and, and a few things that I didn't like about the script, um, just in case anybody out there is interested in reading it. I would recommend it just as, you know, if nothing else, as just like a, a curiosity exercise just to sort of see – 
you know, in an alternate universe, what might have been. And and like Peter said, that was just their first draft. So I'm guessing things would have changed, you know, significantly, even if they, even if uh, Colin Trevorrow had stayed on as the director. Um, but I, I really loved what it did with Finn and Rose. Like Rose is like, uh, she's really indispensable to the action here. She uses her hacking skills a lot, which I thought was really cool. Um, Finn is basically like a, a revolutionary figure who takes to the streets and leads this uprising, not only of citizens but of fellow stormtroopers he like uh, you know comes face to face with some people that he trained with back in the day and and like inspires stormtroopers to like remove their helmets and take up arms against the brutality of the first order um which i thought was great and and you know a, a much more um i don't know detailed uh, intensive storyline than what we got with him in the final movie um i really really love what they did with uh hucks because they make him this guy who is like He's quietly been sort of like a, an embarrassed fanboy of Jedi and Sith this whole time. Um, and I really feel like Donald Gleason would have worked some real magic with that material. Um, <laughs> for the most part, I really liked what the script does with Ray's story. I, I, I also loved how it handled Kylo Ren. There's this part where uh, he has a much more organic reason for putting his mask back on in this version of the story than what we got in the final film, because he's blasted in the face early on in the, in the story and he's operated on and there are these scars all over that he wants to cover up. So that's why he puts the mask back on. Um, oh, oh the Raylos like, would have hated that. Uh, probably. Um, there's, there's uh, some stuff that I didn't like though. I, I really did not like the way that the Ray and Kylo Ren storyline concluded. There's like this, um, a sort of confrontation between the two of them that really feels really anticlimactic to me. Um, and I especially hated that the movie decides to give Ray a last name, which is something that I don't feel that character needs. But um, yeah, other than that, I, I thought it was a really interesting experiment. Yeah. I like the broad strokes of it. I like setting it as like a revolution movie, a revolution story. And I like that, you know, basically, you know, what happened on crate, like, the First Order has taken over control of communication between planets that basically stopped that story from, you know, going across the galaxy. And it's about them trying to, like, you know, t- you know, remove their that communication barrier and uh, stuff like that. Uh, I, I don't think I like where it goes in the third act. <laughs> uh, it, it, I don't like Poe and, and Ray become a thing. Which is weird and didn't feel like I don't feel that at all in any of the. I mean, I guess they only meet in the end of the Last Jedi, right? And that was the one thing that Colin Trevorrow asked Ryan Johnson. He was like, like the one thing he asked Ryan Johnson to do was like, you need to have these characters meet at the end of the film, and that was because he was going to have this love story, which I guess builds up to this point where Ray, knowing what's going to happen in the end of this this climactic moment uses her um the uh the force to basically have Poe le- like like the Jedi like mind a, track. Like She's a, using a yeah. Jedi mind track again like in a way that we've never seen before. Which is clever, but I don't know. I just don't see Poe and Ray like what do you think about Poe and Ray? <laughs> I was kind of into it, to be honest with you. And maybe it's because I never really, I don't know. I, I love The Last Jedi and I love the the tension between Rey and Kylo Ren romantically in that movie. But I kind of, uh, there's part of me that's like, 
Daisy Ridley and Oscar Isaac are like two extraordinarily attractive people. If they're going to meet and, uh, you know, I would not be remotely surprised if those two characters developed feelings for each other. And it's it's interesting the way it plays out because it's, it's sort of like for half the movie, they're kind of like, uh, you know, hinting toward it, but not actually going there. And um, I don't know. I, I thought it was pretty well done. Uh, Chris, I know you read some of the script. What did you make of that uh, relationship in particular? I mean, I didn't really... I didn't hate it, but I didn't buy it either. I mean, just because there's, there was like no real precedent for it. Like, like, you know, Peter said they, those characters didn't like meet until like the final frame of the last Jedi. So I feel like I probably would have liked it a bit more if there had been some hint of it in the previous movies. But beyond that, what I've read of this script, I'm, I'm mostly like what I mostly like most about it is it feels like a continuation of, of this trilogy. Unlike, the rise of Skywalker, which did not to me, it felt like almost like a completely standalone thing, which just confused me to no end. And I also really love that it underscores that Ray is still special, even though she's not, you know, related to anyone. I, yeah, I, I will, I will never ever be okay with, you know, whatever you have to say about uh, the rise of Skywalker, I will never be okay with that angle where it's like, ah, she's the emperor's granddaughter. I just think that's, beyond ridiculous and i'm so <laughs> gl- i really like if there was one thing i i wish they had kept from this script it's it's that arc for ray that she's still you know she's important but she does she's important because of who she is not who she's related to and i i boy i wish they had, had stuck with that i think peter's right though there's this this moment where ray uses the jedi mind trick on poe he, he's trying to like convince her to yeah, not go off on her own and, and fight this battle or something like that. I don't remember the, the specifics, but she basically like forces him to stay behind. Um, and she hates herself for doing it, but she knows that it's the only way that she's going to be able to do what she needs to do. And uh, like Peter said, you know, we've never seen Jedi mind tricks used in that way before. And I thought it was really cool. And I, I wonder actually if, if they had that idea first and then sort of like um, retroactively came up the romance just to build up to it, you know, to get to that <laughs> moment. But um, Peter, I'll, I guess I'll let you have the last word on this. Cause I know you're, you're obviously a big fan yeah. of, uh, of the rise of Skywalker. So um, I know you said you, you like some of the ideas in this, but uh, I, I take it. You still prefer the final version that we actually got. I, I do. I, like I, I prefer some moments in this and it's interesting too, to see what, what little bits and pieces of this, became into the rise of skywalker because you mm-hmm. know Derek connelly and colin trevorrow got a story by credit uh through wga arbitration and you can definitely see some bits like you know the beginning with kylo ren going to mustafar to get a little triangular device which in the final film is a wayfinder in this it was a uh a sith holocron which it almost seems like they just had the design and they're like I guess we don't have enough time to redesign it. Let's just use the holocron as a wayfinder. Um, But uh, I I like, I will say this as someone who uh, is on the side of, I like Palpatine being part of this final chapter. I, I do like how Colin brought him into this because he is used as, you know, a transmission, something he recorded before he died to, you know, put it into this you know this whole final order and i i think that would have been cool because uh you don't need to have him back and it, it's a you know I, I will say one of the weakest parts of red skywalker is you know ray fighting the emperor because like it's like he's a guy like held together 
with like tubes yeah. and stuff. It's not very <laughs> cinematic uh, there. Uh, but th- there is some some really bad stuff in here. I-, I think a lot of people are praising this because there is a, a lot of people in film Twitter that are reading this that do not like Rise of Skywalker and especially do not like that it's, it's not as much of a follow-up to uh, Last Jedi. And this is more of a follow-up to Last Jedi. Uh, but there is some... On, on that side, side of things, there is some good in this. I think there is good in the broad strokes, but there's also some really bad stuff in this. Uh, there's some cringeworthy stuff. There's stuff uh, – a couple of my friends keep on texting me the line the, that uh, Hux has realized he lost the Star War. <laughs> and then but he, that's it, not even a line in the movie. That's I just know. A, a description like, yeah. for the reader. Yeah. It's just, it, it's just like one of those lines you read and you're like, ugh. I, for one, would have loved that that were a line in the film where Hawks is just like, oh, no, we lost the Star Wars. Well, the final looks... line was Ray saying, we finally have Star Peace. <laughs> yeah, that'd be even better, too. God, all these missed opportunities. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I also don't think this is a, a movie that we would have ever gotten. Like, you know, there was two other drafts of this and there was reasons, you know, Carrie Fisher had a big or not a big role, but a more significant role in this. And mm-hmm. they, you couldn't have made that happen. And uh, I think Kathleen Kennedy wanted to have the whole, you know, Ray Kylo uh, thing happen and uh, wanted to have his redemption. And I, I don't think uh, reading between the lines here, I don't, I don't think Trevorrow really wanted to have the redemption of Kylo Ren, but, um, but yeah, uh, Chris, what else did you think of this? Because I know you just got to speak on that relationship and just very broad strokes. But uh, did, did you read the whole thing or just read parts of it? I've read the the bulk of it and I read like the 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 whole ending and uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I I like most of it. It still has problems. I don't. I think you know, Colin Trevorrow is an okay screenwriter. He's not he's not the yeah. best. He's not the worst. He's somewhere in the middle. Um, there's a lot of great ideas in this. There's a lot of not so great ideas in this, but. You know, it's hard to say because I don't want to go as far as saying like, ah, this would have been better than what we got because, you know, how a script reads always is different than how, it, you know, the final film looks and turns out. So, you know, for all I know, this could end up being even worse than what we've got, although I have a hard time believing that. But, uh, you know, it's an OK read. I kind of wish they would do like like they're doing with like alien and predator where they they take this unused script and turn it into a comic i remember like darren arnofsky also did that with his first draft of uh the fountain which was like much much more ambitious before he's the budget got slashed yeah. and i think that would be cool if like one day they took this script i don't well, think they ever will but if they took it and adapted it into a comic or something like that yeah i don't think that's ever going to happen but they did do that with the george lucas's original star wars uh like treatment or something there was like a whole uh comic book that was horrible <laughs> it's just that <laughs> because it's star, star wars is one of those things that ended up being good because of all the constraints uh from the production i think but um anyways uh this script can be found online illegally if you search for it <laughs> but it's it seems like disney is not trying to you know shut it down so so if you want to find it you can find it but we can't link to it uh, but uh, th- that also said, Jacob, are you at all interested in reading this? I will read it at some point. I am so – I'm not even mad at Rise of Skywalker anymore. I'm just disappointed, and it it is such an open wound for me, like deep in my soul, that I don't even want to know 
the what if at this point. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait. I'll catch up with it when I when, when I have some calluses over that over that uh, gaping <laughs> wound in my heart. Yeah, I I do think it's a shame that this came out so soon after the release of the movie because it it, it was almost like we were talking about what like I don't know. G- give us a month. <laughs> before we, we we get the script uh but there there is some other interesting things i wanted to mention really quick uh there's a point where i guess it's kind of like the babu frick moment where they go to this planet uh in rise of skywalker to go to the planet babu frick to get some information out of c3po but in uh trevorrow's movie they were going to this dream mapper who could get into ray's head and map a place from her from her dreams which I, I think is just a, such a clever and interesting thing. But th- th- there's some good stuff in here. There's some bad stuff in here. I don't think this is like, oh, my God, this would have been so much better. Uh, I think this is just, oh, my God, it would be so much different. But, uh, yeah, if you want to check that out, that is online somewhere. You know, search Reddit or something. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, the only thing I want to talk about this week, I've mostly been rewatching The Office. <laughs> That's why I've been doing all my free time, and I'll, I'll report back when that uh, watch to do is done but i watched polaroid a horror movie that was shot so long ago and delayed so many times that peter i wrote about this movie in a preview blurb for fandango <laughs> so before i was even at slash film i wrote about the upcoming movie polaroid uh lars Klevberg, the director his second movie his the new child's play remake came out before this to give you an idea of after the movie was delayed, he went and made a whole other movie that was released in the theaters and uh, vanished without, and vanished from theaters and came out in home video all before this thing came out. And it, it had some kind of release last year, uh, some kind, certainly not a wide release. Now it's streaming on Netflix where it belongs. Cause it's a very bad movie. It is a haunted Polaroid camera that you get your picture taken with it, a ghost kills you. So it's the ring with a Polaroid camera. It is incredibly generic uh very bad monster design not scary pg-13 so it feels it's a very diet coke horror movie there's nothing here no no sugar no substance it's not it's not even like a fun bad time it is you can see why it was delayed for so long i mean the real reason was because it was it was a, it was a weinstein production so i caught up in that but clearly when all the weinstein assets went up for sale Nobody wanted to pick up this piece of garbage. It's so, so it hovered for so long. There's, there's no hook here. It's just a bad movie. Uh, the one thing it has going for it is a Javier Botet, the Spanish actor, who is incredibly tall, incredibly thin, and has been playing uh, creatures in horror movies for years. And you can't. I, I, I appreciate any horror movie that casts Javier Botet and, and 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 like takes advantage of him as a physical actor because he really is. Uh, he really does go for it, uh, even when the monster design built on him is very bad. Uh, that's Polaroid. I can't recommend it, even for a bad, even for like for a bad movie night. Uh, there are so many other great bad horror movies to watch before Polaroid. Okay, then. So don't watch Polaroid. Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I got to see The Invisible Man. I, I took a trip to New York the other day to see it in a, uh, a screening room. Um, the, the new Invisible Man, directed by Lee Wanall and starring Elizabeth Moss. And uh, the review is embargoed, but social reaction isn't. So let's count this as social reaction. And I will say, I, I really liked it. Um, it's it's so much different than Lee Wannell's previous film, uh, Heart. What the hell was it? What was that called? <laughs> Upgrade. Sorry, it's oh, my yeah. mind for a minute. Upgrade. It's so much different than that. Um, and I think it really shows how much like range he has as a filmmaker because. 
uh, upgrade is very like action packed and, 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 and like fast. And this is much slower and much more about like building dread. And it's like a completely different tone. So I think that was one of the things that like impressed me the most that he's, he's showing that he's actually like a really uh, talented filmmaker who can do different things. Um, And Elizabeth Moss is, is great. She seems to specialize in these roles where she plays women who are like going through hell. She seems like, it seems to be like her, her little niche she's carved out and she's, she's great in it. And just the way they, uh, the story has been like updated. Um, it's, a, you know, to be sort of like very much, I don't want to use the term, like it's a me too movie because I hate when people use that phrase for stuff like this, but uh, that's like the, the, the really you can tell that sort of influence there because it's all about you know this this woman trying to escape her abusive gaslighting uh, ex boyfriend and um, but it's not done in a, like a, a ham fisted like ah this is a an important movie sort of way it's just like there in the story which uh, I thought was was pretty interesting so all in all this is this is very very good it's very it's it's really worth seeing and uh, yeah. I have one okay. question, Chris. Uh, as a fellow Universal Monster fan, um, the Invisible Man himself is a bit of an outlier in the canon of Universal Monsters because most of those got most of those monsters are ultimately tragic, and uh, their downfall is sad in some way. Or Invisible Man, from top to bottom, in every version of the character, is just a monstrous dick. Uh, yes. So, w- with that in mind, it seems that we lean into that. But does it still feel like? In any way, have the DNA of Universal Monsters in there? I so I, I have to say no, which makes it sound like this is bad because I love Universal Monster movies. But this feels very much not in that pantheon. It, it's very, for one thing, it's very very modern. And anytime I think of Universal Monsters, I think of you know that old Gothic feel, and there's none of that in this movie. And the Invisible Man. You know, in the original, in the you know the the Claude Rains movie, Visual Man is like you know the main character, and we spend a lot of time with him. You really don't get to know the Invisible Man that much in this movie. We just really learn about him secondhand. Um, that's all I can say without giving more away. But so it's you know if this is very much not in the same style as classic Universal monsters. At the same time. I this is a much better approach than the the Tom Cruise mummy, so I can't complain too much. Okay, and you also saw Frozen 2? Yes, I got sent uh, that on Blu-ray because I didn't see it in theaters. And it's good. I think I actually liked it more than the first one, at least in terms of like story, because it actually feels like the story goes somewhere. And I feel like the, the original Frozen, which is fine. It's not like, I don't think it's a bad movie, but the original one sort of just like peters out after the, the let it go number. Like after that, the whole movie sort of like goes downhill and, I didn't really get that from this one. It felt like more well thought out. So I liked it. Frozen 2, everyone. That's the correct take. Frozen 2 is better than Frozen 1, and I agree entirely. I, I can't believe it's even a conversation. That, that, that is an incorrect take. The <laughs> The ending of this movie is an abomination. What? what? Abomination? That's yeah. a bit strong, Peter. Yeah, I, I, I can't get behind this at all, Peter. There's, there's, I, I don't know what you're saying. And and, and, and there's, no, there's no song that's even to the closeness of of let it go and show yourself is, is amazing show i think yourself that into the unknown song is very good too it's very it, catchy it's fine but it's not on the same level of let it go okay anyways uh ben what have you been watching 
I watched Jerry Maguire and I hated it. Um, I've never seen this movie before. Uh, I don't know how that happened. It's a Cameron Crowe movie that was like a very huge deal when it came out in 1996. And I have I I like Tom Cruise. Uh, I like a lot of the people who are in this movie. I just somehow never got around to seeing it. And it's on Showtime right now. And uh, my wife and I sat down on Valentine's Day when we were like looking for something to watch. And I was like, you know what? Jerry Maguire is supposed to be a good like romantic comedy kind of thing that we've never seen. And we're like, all right, let's do it. Let's go for it. And we both were like, oh, man, this movie. So I, I don't know if there are Jerry Maguire stands on this podcast, but because uh, I know a lot of people on this podcast really love Cameron Crowe. But man, I thought this was just a total miss, like almost all the way around. I think um, Cuba Gooding Jr. is like one of the only good aspects of this. I think the script feels like so regressive. Like, like it, I mean, I, I understand it came out in the mid 90s, but it felt like it came out in like, I don't know, the mid 80s or something based on the way that it treats a lot of its characters, uh, especially the women. I thought it was just really, really tough to watch, you know, with today's eyes for the first time. Um contextually i understand that it was a different era and all that stuff um but just uh, it's a little tough to divorce uh from you know the, the way that uh that from the the slight uh, improvements that the industry has made <laughs> since then um man i i was just I, I did not buy the romance between uh tom cruise and uh, renee zellweger at all and that is the entire movie hangs on you you know, it, it requires you to fully buy into that. And I did not. And that was uh, so it was basically an excruciating experience trying to trying to get through this. And I was not expecting that. I basically ruined our Valentine's Day by choosing this movie. So um, I feel wow. bad for my wife. But uh, yeah, anybody else uh, have any thoughts on Jerry Maguire, positive or negative? I'm just curious because I know this is, you know, this was a huge movie at the time, but I haven't really heard anybody talk about it recently. I remember liking it when it when I saw it in the 90s, but but I haven't rewatched it in years, nor have I like felt the urge to. Yeah, I what if I said that, with the exception of Almost Famous, Cameron Crowe has never made a good movie. I'll go you one better. I don't even like Almost Famous. My favorite what? Cameron Crowe. My favorite Cameron Crowe movie is Vanilla Sky, and I know I'm like the only person who feels that way. But no, I love Vanilla I, Sky. I like Vanilla Sky, but Almost Famous is better. And also, say anything is good. I was never a huge Jerry Maguire fan, but I do feel like. It is a movie of its time and does not play well today. But HD, what do I'm, you think? Oh, I, I think I'm one of the people on this podcast who didn't see it when it came out. I saw it maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. Um, and I liked it then. Uh, but I do think it was a very performance-heavy movie. I enjoyed the performances a lot. The plot itself I, I found rather forgettable. But I'm surprised, honestly, by your uh, just um, extreme reaction to it. Because I don't think it would warrant hate. Um, but yeah, I mean, to each his own. Yeah. It's like, I, I hate maybe a little bit strong. It was just really, really tough for, it was a tough sit for me. Um, I just, I, it felt so nineties to me and, and maybe like I said, like so eighties to me that I just couldn't, I couldn't engage with it. And, and it wasn't like, uh, like in that throwback way where it's like fun to see something from that era. It just struck me as like all of the worst parts of the worst movies of, of those uh, time periods sort of like 
um, brought together in this really uh, melodramatic way that I just it did not it did not connect with me. I'm sure. I, I like I said, I know this was a massive movie at the time. It was nominated for five Oscars, and like tons of people probably are listening to this and saw it at the time and are like, "What are you talking about?" But just from my experience of you know having completely missed the boat on it the first time around and watching it for the first time now um and looking back on it it was just a it was a rough one for me so that's jerry Maguire. it's on showtime right now if you want to check that out uh and then i also on the criterion channel i watched yojimbo for the first time this is um akira kurosawa's 1961 samurai movie that is basically the uh you know it's like the the template for a bunch of movies that have have come uh, afterwards. Uh, it's basically about a lone samurai who wanders into a small town where these two crime lords are, you know, going back and forth and trying to uh, to take over the town. And this samurai sort of like plays the two bosses against each other and and uh, ends up like just walking away and and moving on. It feels like very um, episodic in that way. Uh, but man, this is a really great movie. It's, uh, it's no surprise because like I said, it's been so incredibly influential over the years, but, um, I've just been very slowly making my way through some of Kurosawa's filmography. Um, as you know, I, I think I'd only, I'd only seen my first Kurosawa movie like uh, two years ago or something like that. So I'm, I'm very late to the party on him and, um, just trying to check a lot of these off. And this one did not feel like homework at all. Um, Toshiro Mufune is, is awesome. He's like the guy that works with Kurosawa a lot. And, uh, he's the main character here and he's, he's so great. And his face is so expressive as usual. And he's, um, yeah, he's just a badass. So, uh, yeah, Yojimbo, very, very good movie. It's one of the best movies ever made. You should go see it. <laughs> Everybody should watch Yojimbo. It's my, it's my go-to it's my go-to. Oh, you don't like subtitled movies? Watch Yojimbo. It's my go-to for that. It yeah. is. It feels so modern. The action is so good. The acting is so great. It is paced so well. It is one of my favorite films of all time. And Ben, I'm so happy you liked it. This movie is so freaking good. Yeah. Ben, you had me at Yojimbo. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's pretty good. Peter. I, I knew HT was going to appreciate that one. <laughs> By the way, that whole thing where he's like, you complete me from uh, Jerry Maguire, that was not even, you know, I've seen that clip a billion times in like uh, clip packages at the Oscars and like, you know, montages of all the great movies of the past 20 years or whatever. That line is not even an original Jerry Maguire line, like uh, Jerry Maguire, the character. He hears somebody else, like somebody else uh, says it to another character in sign language earlier in the movie. And then Renee Zellweger's character uh, translates it for him, and then he says it late in this movie in like this, you know, big, super melodramatic, uh, romantic context. And I'm like, this isn't even like you're not even saying an original thing. It's it's oh, man, it just robbed it's an emotional two beat. Ben, it's supposed to be about him, you know, learning to listen to others or something. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I, I just man, this whole thing was just a big whiff for me. Sorry, I had to bring that up. <laughs> HT, what did you see this week? Um, I saw Mary Poppins Returns for the first time. I have been, um, I had a lot of time to myself this weekend because uh, it was Valentine's Day and I was just chilling with me, myself, and my glass of wine. And so I decided to check it out because I hadn't seen it yet. And um, it's good. I think Emily Bunt is uh, perfect, more than practically perfect in, in every way as Mary Poppins. She really just captures that uh, that genial sternness that... Uh, 
Julie Andrews had in the first film, and I, I really, really loved her in this role. Uh, the film itself is all right. The musical performances are great. Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, seems to be just having a, a ball, but I was not a fan of how the story, and I've kind of noticed this in a lot of Disney live-action movies recently, how it it needs to make everything so high stakes. I think the wonderful thing about the original Mary Poppins and a lot of older Disney live action films is how low stakes they are and, and animated films as well. Um, and I just, um, the whole climactic chase scene that where they have to make it in time to the bank and they are dangling off the side of a clock or something was just um, over the top for me. And I, I didn't really enjoy that, but I really liked the first half of the film and I loved Emily Blunt in this. Um, other things I've been watching is, uh, in addition to my uh, Mary Poppins watch, Mary Poppins Returns watch the first uh, time, I decided to check out a couple of other rom-coms or rewatch a couple of the rom-coms because uh, it was Valentine's Day and I was chilling uh, with myself. <laughs> and uh, so I watched, um, I rewatched a couple of ones that I really enjoy, like When Harry Met Sally and Richard Jones' Diary. Um, and those are so excellent and hold up so well. Um, and I decided to also check out While You Were Sleeping, which is streaming on Disney Plus, because uh, I'd only seen it in parts uh, on TV reruns. And I always enjoy Sandra Bullock and her movies and was like, yeah, it's a, it's a classic. So it should be a fun way to end my Valentine's Day. And uh, it's not good. I, I came to that realization as I was watching it because I it, it's a lot broader and a lot more uh, goofy than I had anticipated it being. And while Sandra Bullock is so charming and she has such a winning smile um, and her chemistry with Bill Pullman is great, too, I just uh, cannot really get invested or, like, um, uh, drawn into the story about her character who really... I mean, gets pulled into this uh, situation where her this family of this businessman who she rescued off the tracks thinks that she she's his fiance, and it's a classic sort of uh, mis uh, miscommunication and uh, was it um, tro- well I can't remember what the word is, but it's a classic sort of bum- bumble in a rom com from the '90s, and uh, I didn't really find it as like charming or nostalgic as. Um, other films of the same time. And I also think that it might've hurt coming after when Harry met Sally and Bridget Jones that are so well-written and so sharp and still hold up so well today. So yeah, while you're sleeping, not that great. Is Bill Pullman a snack? He's fine. (laughs) (laughs) He builds furniture, which is like nice, I guess. Tell me this, Mary Poppins returns. Why was there BMX biking like in Mary Poppins? Like I I don't understand. Weren't weren't they on like BMX bikes like doing like no? Yeah, I think oh. the uh, the chimney sweeps were there was definitely a biking scene <laughs> at one point. There weren't I, BMX bikes; they were bikes of the era. Peter, come <laughs> on! And I really hated that movie, and I love the original Mary Poppins. And it, it's it's rare when I hate a Disney movie, but I hate it. Peter, you're being very wrong today about Disney things. Between Frozen well, Two, Mary Poppins Returns, uh, uh, I, I I will say Emily I, Blunt was was great, but everything else in that movie was bad. I'm right there with you, Peter. Yeah. Yeah, I was lukewarm on it, but um, I probably agree with a lot of your criticisms with it. Um, another thing that I've been re-watching is Avatar The Last Airbender, which I've talked about on this uh, 
podcast before, I'm sure. But I got Oh yeah, you got a, a box set, right? Yeah, I got a box set. So I got a my first steelbook, actually, because I, I we have had conversations about steelbooks, and I really saw the appeal, uh, at least of buying them myself. I didn't have to buy this myself. I got it sent to me. So there we go. Um, and it's really cool. It's got a uh, new art uh, on the cover, um, art by uh, Caleb Thomas. And it's this really beautiful sort of triptych, if you lay all the steelbooks next to each other, uh, that shows the main character, Aang, uh, bending all the elements, controlling the elements of earth, wind, uh, fire, and, um, and water. And um, I also got, with this package, a scroll of that image as well. It, it's really cool. I'm excited about that. Um, but yeah, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, I haven't actually rewatched the entire series um, since it got taken off Netflix uh, several years ago, but I was excited to watch it again. Uh, I had watched a couple episodes when I was abroad because it's still on Netflix internationally, but um, it was great to just like go through the entire thing. And yeah, I, I can't recommend Avatar The Last Airbender enough. It's uh, a great classic story of uh, a hero's, um, hero's journey, as well as that classic fight between good and evil and a looming empire that must be defeated. It has a lot of elements of Star Wars. If you are in a Star Wars sort of um, funk and uh, want to see something that has similar uh, themes and characters, but uh, actually makes the uh, East Asian cultural subtext text, which is really fun to see. Like they put a lot of research into uh, making, building this world out of um, the inspirations from Chinese, Tibetan, Korean, and Southeast Asian cultural uh, imagery. And um, that's one of my favorite parts of Avatar: Last Airbender. But it's such it's such good character writing and such a great series. And um, I'm already about. Uh, halfway through season two, and it's three seasons total, so I'm sure I'll be very sad and just rewatch it again once I'm done. But yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, what, what, what anniversary is what, this? Week. I'm sorry, I was gonna say, what what is your feeling on the the follow up series, the Cora? Uh, Legend of Cora has its ups and downs. It has um, its problem with Legend Cora is that its main like group of characters isn't as tightly knit as the uh, original series. And it has um, no overarching arc. It kind of has season long arcs. And thus the villains, while much more dark and um, surprisingly violent, are a little bit on the forgettable side. It has really amazing fight scenes. They switched up the studio animating the the, uh, series and it looks so impressive and beautiful. But um, just aside from a few like great moments and sequences, Legend of Korra isn't quite, doesn't quite reach the heights avatar and it's not not as consistent as avatar either yeah i know when it came out like it was getting critically it was getting like such great reviews but it just seems like the the avatar audience hasn't embraced it in the same way that they embraced last airbender mm-hmm. yeah uh what else have you been watching or is that uh, it that is it okay uh let's move on to what we've been playing chris what have you been playing uh, I've been playing Kentucky Route Zero on the Nintendo Switch. I got a, a Switch for Christmas, but I don't have a lot of games because those games are shockingly expensive, which I didn't realize when I got the Switch. But it's like 60 bucks a game a lot of times, which is uh, a little a little bit much for me. But Kentucky Route Zero, it's an indie game, so it was a little cheaper. And it's also my kind of game in that it's not hard. It's literally just like pointing and, and clicking, and that's really it. And... That's the kind of game I like. I don't need a challenge, folks. I just want to relax. So uh, this is a, a very 
cool game. I haven't finished it yet, but it's it's almost like hypnotic in a way, like the the art and then the and the music and and you know the the missions, which are just all about this guy trying to find this sort of mythical road, and he keeps going to very strange David Lynch like locations. And I don't know, I, I I'm I'm very much enjoying it. I'm taking my time with it playing it sparingly because once i'm done with it i will be out of games for a while so kentucky route zero now available on the switch chris i have a question about this one i have not played it yet uh because it was released episodically in five chapters over seven years yes and so i was i was originally gonna wait for it to all be all together and play it because i've been hearing such good things about it for so long but playing it all together uh does it feel episodic or does it feel like a complete package to you um, well, every time there's a new level, there's like a title card that says like chapter or whatever, but it feels connected to me because every, every like mission sort of leans, leads into something else. Like he'll go, the character will go somewhere and someone will mention something and that something will pop up at the next level and so on. So it, it feels like one thing to me. Very cool. Okay. So that does it for today's slash home daily you can find more of all of our work at slash home.com you can find this podcast every weekday on itunes google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps you can send us your feedback questions comments concerns to us at peter at slash home.com and please rate and read this podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you tomorrow hey hey peter jacob we uh this is a shorter episode we don't yeah, need... we got to beef up the time. We got to beef up the running time with a gargantuan book of insults, offense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts, reposts, costs, quips, and implied put-downs by Lewis A. Safian. I've moved to page 296. Features. Easily the funniest, most insulting jokes in the entire book. Are you ready, Peter? Sure. Of course you're ready, Peter. Okay, Peter. <laughs> when, when Peter runs into a cornfield, he scares the crows so badly, they bring back the corn they took the year before. <laughs> wait wait say that again i actually like that one i'm, I'm a sucker goes, for a good cornfield joke when peter goes into the cornfield he scares the crows so badly they bring back the corn that took the year before you know what these jokes are they're pretty corny well <laughs> ht a martian took one look at you with your thick cold cream curlers and hairnet and exclaimed lance man <laughs> what? I don't what the it. hell does that mean? <clears throat> HT. Oh no. Martian took one look at her with her thick cold cream curlers and hairnet and exclaimed, Lance Man. Ah. <laughs> Lance Man. Like L A N C E. L A N T Z M A N. Clearly, Ben. Come on. T Z M A N. I have to look this up. A fellow Jew who grew up in the same Eastern European shuttle as the speaker is what <laughs> Lampsman What? Means. I mean, obviously it means that. Wait, J- Jacob, did you know that? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows what <laughs> Lampsman means. <laughs> uh, very yeah, common yeah. word. Everyone knows that word and knows what it means. Yeah, and, yeah. and especially Martians know that word. Yeah. Well, Ben, Ben is not exactly bad looking. There's just a little blemish between uh, his ears. His face. <laughs> oh, and, and Chris, if a man's face is his fortune, he'll never have to pay income tax. Mm. Okay, then. Th- that does it, right?
Some generous person should give Peter a kitten. He could use a new puss. <laughs> oh my goodness. Whoa. What? Wait, wait, what, what is that trying to say? It's trying I, to say that you the look on your face needs I'm, to change. Okay, okay. Puss, get your mind out of the gutter. Puss as in face, <laughs> as an expression on a face. What do yeah, you think, it's, Peter? In like the think? Bugs Bunny sense of the term. Ah. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Okay, then. Well, Ben, he looks a million every year of it. <laughs> Jacob, when you said that these were the best, uh, funniest jokes, is that something the book claimed, or is that something that you claimed? HT, she has a bleaches and cream complexion. <sighs> wait, wait, what? B- bleaches and cream? HT, she has a bleaches and cream complexion. Is it because I'm very white? Clearly. Wait. <laughs> is that racist? Chris, Chris, he's had his face lifted so many times, he talks through his nose. Ah. <laughs> Everyone says, Peter is an angel fallen from the skies. Too bad he happened to land on his face. Jacob, these are just mean. <laughs> True story. Oh, it turns out I w- wasn't even, re- even recording any of these insults. So, oh, I better start uh, over. Uh, <laughs> no. Peter, when no, you uh, uh, it was a joke. Field, he scares the crows Jacob, so badly. Was, no, they it was bring a joke. back the corn that took the year before. J- Jacob, I was joking. <laughs> HT, a marker, one look at her with her thick cold cream curlers and hairnet, exclaimed, "Lance man!" Uh, slow fade out, Peter. Slow fade out. 